because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, I am in California. We're seeing some haze where I am in Southern California, but in Northern California and other places, there are all kinds of problems from wildfires. And maybe the biggest problem is that there are huge misconceptions about what are the causes of these wildfires and what to do about them. And I'm really excited this week. I have on a guest who wrote, I think the best piece so far on the history of California wildfire policy and what's actually driving the problem. His name is Chuck DeVore. He's a vice president at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Yeah, that's the right, that's the right thing. And uh, he ha he's a former California state assemblyman and has a lot of expertise on this issue. So without further ado, let me bring him on. Chuck, welcome to Power Hour. Hey, great to be with you. It's uh, taken a while. I'm, I'm glad I'm finally on your show. This is awesome. Uh, yeah, me, uh, me too. You're, I'm really glad you were so responsive and could come on so quickly because it's a super uh, timely issue. So let's start off with what's your background in California politics in general, and then specifically with regard to forest management and wildfires. Sure. Well, I became a, a college activist in the early 80s when Ronald Reagan was president. I was the head of my college Republican club at uh, Cal State Fullerton and then eventually got an Army scholarship that let me go to Claremont McKenna College. And um, I stayed pretty active in politics. I ended up serving in the Reagan administration as a very young presidential appointee in the Pentagon uh, and then came back to California uh, and stayed active in politics as a volunteer. Uh, was on the party central committee, Republican Party Central Committee in Orange County for a decade. Uh, and eventually, um, I ran for the state assembly in 2004 and won. Uh, at the time, I had been working in the aerospace industry for 13 years. Now, uh, prior to that, when I was going to high school, uh, Alex, I lived in the Eastern High Sierra. So I, I lived on, on a private plot of ground, though, though that was surrounded by federally owned uh, land, either the Bureau of Land Management or the U.S. Forest Service land. And even back then in the 1970s, we used to say that uh, your worst neighbor, the worst possible neighbor you could have was the federal government. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, forest management practices took a step down during the uh, Clinton, or pardon me, the, the Carter years, first in the 70s. Uh, There's a little bit of uh, retrenchment and improvement under Reagan. And then again, a step back <clears throat> during the, the Clinton era uh, when you had, of course, the spotted owl ruling uh, and frankly, just a very hostile attitude toward any sort of uh, uh, you know, private uh, logging of public lands. Uh, the, the feeling was that it was somehow immoral to make any money at all off of publicly owned lands. And so you saw uh, the rapid demise of California's forest industry uh, where the jobs fell by more than half over a period of about uh, a decade and a half. Uh, and so that was kind of the background I took with me to the California legislature, even though I represented an urban district in Southern California. In fact, my old district uh, included most of coastal Orange County. Uh, but that background having grown up in the Eastern High Sierra, uh, and then just really paying attention to the forestry industry when I was in the legislature. Uh, you know, it's amazing how much you can learn if you uh, decide to read a few things that aren't necessarily put in front of you. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll bet I'll bet you are unusual in reading anything by the forestry industry because, unfortunately, industry, which means you know systematic human productivity, has a bad name, and so people just think, oh, well, I, the last thing I want to know is about uh, industry. So let's let's start off. I want to go through some of the historical perspective that you bring, but let's just start off with overall. Like, what's your just so people get an intro to your perspective? What's your overall view? of how policy should change. And I wanna make clear on what I think is the goal. I think of it as preventing dangerous out of control wildfires. I don't think of that as necessarily the same as preventing fires period. In fact, one policy can cause the worst version or for trying to prevent fires can cause dangerous out of control wildfires. But overall, what do you think, how do you think policy needs to change to prevent dangerous out of control wildfires? Yeah, so uh, in short, we need to have less fuel in the forest. Um, every year in California, uh, an enormous amount of, of forest grow, whether in Northern California where you have trees that can frequently be commercially uh, logged or along the coast, mostly in Southern California where you, what you have is chaparral where there's no intrinsic economic value to it, but the chaparral uh, is kind of designed biologically to burn every 20 to 30 years and as it gets older and uh, gets more fuel, it becomes more dangerous. And so, first of all, it's to what do you mean? What do you mean as it gets more fuel? Just so we understand. In other words, in other words, the natural cycle of chaparral along the coast of California, mostly in Southern California, is that uh, it will burn off if left to its own devices about every twenty to thirty years, where you have the infrequent lightning storms that strike the coastal Southern California region. Uh, and it then renews itself after it burns off. Now, what's happened since the advent of urbanization along the coast is that those uh, scrub brush, the coastal chaparral, have been immediately suppressed when it comes to any sort of fire, whether natural or man-made fire. And then further, the fire marshals along the coast who warn of the increasing fuel load and the danger that that has for people who live along the coast uh, number one, they want to do prescribed burns. They want to get out ahead of it and burn off certain areas that have gotten too dense. Uh, and they're frequently in the past have been stopped, not only by air quality management concerns, but also environmental lawsuits. And then the other thing they warn about is for people who own property along the coast is they constantly emphasize clearing a defensible space, a perimeter around your home. And what you frequently see where uh, the, you have these spectacular homes often owned by uh, wealthy individuals or even celebrities who end up losing their homes and of course immediately blame climate change. And the thing is, is if you can look at their homes prior to the fire, I kid you not, I've seen this in home after home that is burned frequently among the celebrity class. You see dense vegetation right up against their home. They had no defensible space because they like the privacy that that thick foliage provides for their home, you know, kind of screens out the paparazzi, they think it looks good. But on the other hand, they just signed uh, essentially the destruction warrant for their own home because they never cleared out a defensible space in a fire prone area. So that's, that's Southern California uh, along the coast. And then Northern California, uh, you have you know, stands of pine trees and redwoods and, and other sorts of trees, uh, roughly divided between a little more than half that's managed by the federal government or mismanaged, and a little less than half that's privately owned forests. So with the, 
And so what overall, what do you think should be done about the Northern California forests? Well, again, for, for both, you need to reduce the fuel. Now, how you do that is different in the South than in the North, right? In the South, you just have to burn it and, and you have to do that preventively. In the North, here's where the controversy comes up. What we've been doing, and this is especially true since 1990, uh, basically after the spotted owl uh, uh, restrictions went into effect, you started to see this collapse in the logging industry. And so what has been happening is merely fire suppression. Anytime a fire comes up, it's immediately suppressed. Uh, at the same time, the amount of wood taken out of the forest has plummeted. It's plummeted way below the amount that it grows every year. In fact, in the 1970s and before, about as much timber was pulled out of uh, the forests of California as grew every year. Uh, and so what happened back then is there'd be clear cutting, sure, there'd be some trees pulled out, and then that would fund uh, forest uh, uh, thinning operations and clearing operations that would reduce the fuel load in the forest. So a lot of this paid for much of the work that needed to be done. So for the last couple of decades then, there's been this huge buildup in fuel in California as the logging and the clearing and the thinning and the preventative burns have diminished, right? Uh, and now we've gotten to the point where we have these out of control fires that are often occurring in forests that have density that isn't just five or 10 times what is healthy, but in some cases, 30 times the number of trees per acre than can be healthily sustained because we've constantly suppressed the fires that would have burned the smaller trees and brush. We haven't let people get in the forest to manage them. So you end up with this very dense forest that not only easily burns, but it makes the trees less drought resistance because you have far more trees than you should have per acre drawing the water out of the water table. And so uh, as far as what should be done, there are two basic visions of this. Uh, the vision that, uh, that I would like to see is kind of back to the future. We go back to the point where we allow our forests to generate economic activity. Uh, now that is, you know, obviously some people consider that unethical that our public forests should not generate income. Uh, and we'll get to that in a moment. But what, what should happen is we ought to see a lot more wood being taken out of the forests. And then with the profit that that generates, that can be used to do things like build access roads, which also serve as fire breaks. Uh, it also serves as roads uh, for which you can get fire suppression equipment into those areas more readily. Uh, and with the profits, you also use that to do thinning and clearing of the forest. Now, in many cases, it's actually going to take more money to thin and clear than would be raised through the auction of the trees. And this is where a lot of times the environmental left comes in and says, well, we don't want you making money off of our national, you know, off of our forest service land or our Bureau of Land Management land. And therefore, uh, we're not going to allow logging, uh, but we will allow a certain amount of prescribed burns. And oh, by the way, you know, if you really want to do it, we'll spend hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer money to do some thinning and some, some brush clearing. And what ends up happening is because you're not generating any profit from the management of the forest, it's going to cost the taxpayers a lot more. And you also have far fewer people working in forestry and certainly far fewer working for the private sector in forestry. And that makes it more difficult to manage the forest. One interesting side effect of this, Alex, was 
when Pacific Gas and Electric was taking heat for the fact that some of their old power lines, in some cases 80 years old, you know, had sparked during high winds and were blamed in these terrible fires, like the Camp Fire, I believe, that killed some 85 people two years ago. Uh, that was traced to these faulty old lines, power lines from Pacific Gas and Electric, and of course, forests that had too much fuel. And so then Pacific Gas and Electric had to go out and try to try to cut back some of the overground vegetation around their power lines. Well, what a surprise. They had a hard time finding qualified foresters to go do it because mm. we've driven most of them into the unemployment line and they've either gone to other states or they found other lines of work. There's just less people that work in the forest anymore in California. And so PG&E was terribly behind schedule because they couldn't find enough qualified people to work to clear uh, defensible spaces around their power lines. So that's an interesting unintended consequence of this. The last thing, Alex, that you see that's uh, kind of disturbing to me uh, is fascinating because I had a back and forth on Twitter with an individual who epitomizes this view, which is that people who live out in the countryside, the, what they call the wildland urban interface or the WUI, people who live out in the areas that are contiguous with federal lands should not really be living out there because it's too difficult to protect them, too difficult to do the fire suppression, and therefore they need to be drawn into increased density urban areas. And of course, I look at this and I say, well, what are you going to do? Take their land? Are you going to have a taking? Are you going to buy them out? And of course, in this conversation as it developed over Twitter, which very predictable, uh, the uh, other side, which I would describe as a, a kind of a quintessential environmental leftist, said, no, uh, they won't be able to live out there because they won't be able to get fire insurance, right? They won't be able to get a mortgage. And so their property will become worthless and they'll have to live in the urban area, right? So this is their vision of the future that we don't really try to manage the forest. We just let it burn. And as a result, any people who live out uh, in, the, in the forested areas of California will be forced by the increased danger to simply pack in their dream, give up that home, and move into an urban area. <clears throat> Let me ask a question that just occurred to me. What if the government did what I think is generally proper and it didn't own these lands and it just sold them off and so people who valued certain lands for logging could use those and then the particularly valuable ones, you know, conservation groups or rich individuals could buy? Like, what, what would fire suppression look like if all this stuff was owned by people? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, it's important to understand that the privately owned forest in California, which is a little less than half, is far more productive in terms of the amount of timber that gets grown and harvested than is the federally owned land. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the best areas that were the most economically viable ended up very early on being privately owned to begin with. And the federal lands were simply those lands that were left over, that were never claimed, uh, that were never acquired under the old Homestead Act or other uh, basically land transfer uh, programs. And so what you're left with in California is that most of your federal lands, most, not all, are uh, in areas that are substantially less productive. They have less rainfall, less you know, precipitation. The soil isn't quite as good. Uh, and so while uh, much of that timber is in fact economically viable, uh, there's less there to really harvest and generate profit than there are in the privately owned lands. Now, 
it's the case with both lands that there are substantial uh, regulatory impediments to really getting the full value out of those lands. You have timber harvest plans that are required. Those cost millions of dollars. You have to hire, uh, you have to hire wildlife biologists and botanists and things like that to basically look at the land that you propose to harvest and write up reports. Uh, you have, uh, of course, watershed concerns when you go in and harvest. Uh, you have to be careful that you don't disturb the soil too much, of course, endangered species. And then uh, to the degree that you're going to do any sort of active management beyond thinning and beyond harvesting, for example, burns, uh, planned burns, prescribed burns, those, of course, need to be coordinated with the California's air quality management districts. And you, of course, have to overcome environmental lawsuits. And what has frequently happened in these cases on both private and public lands is that the process to get a permit to thin or to clear or to burn took so long that frequently these lands actually burn before the government gives its permission to allow them to be cleared. And even Gavin Newsom admitted this. What was fascinating to me is, you know, Gavin Newsom is a descendant from one of the five richest and oldest families in California. The guy is like old money California wealth. And he was remarking when he first ran for governor how his own parents, uh, for the modestly sized parcel that they have, and I guess it's probably modest by Texas standards, maybe it's huge by California standards, but he was saying how his own dad had to spend something like forty-five dollars or $55,000 to be able to do some active forest management on his own privately held small plot. And so because of that, he was more understanding of some of the hurdles that people face in trying to do the right thing and to reduce the fuel load on their own privately held property. And as a result, more so than Jerry Brown, Gavin Newsom has actually taken incremental steps in the right direction to do more active forest management and to clear some of these regulatory hurdles. Now, I would argue that it's still not enough. In other words, on a yearly basis, even with the modest steps he's taken, even if they were fully implemented, I'm pretty certain that there's still going to be more fuel growing every year than is either harvested, cleared, trimmed, or burned. And so that remains a problem. It's just that it's not getting as bad as quickly as it was under Jerry Brown and prior uh, administrations, both at the state and the federal level. Got it. Well, Newsom is a good transition into looking a bit at from a historical perspective of California's climate and susceptibility to fire, because if you look at what Newsom is saying, and it, it's really interesting, he really has a smug grin on his face when he says it. He's like, this is climate change. Climate change is real. You have the evidence in front of you. And part of the impression, I think the impression that people have that, that leads to this conclusion that, oh, if there's a bad wildfire, it must be climate has changed dramatically is because they think of the natural state as one in which we don't have a lot of fires in California. So historically, what was California's climate like in terms of being prone to fire? Well, first of all, uh, I was in the California Army National Guard for 24 years, and we used to joke in the Cal Guard that there's four California seasons, flood, fire, earthquake, and riot. And so, so it's <laughs> what's certainly the, something- What's the fourth one? Riot. <laughs> I, I was in the 1992 Los Angeles riot, so oh, I was man. in the middle of it uh, in, the, uh, in the Crenshaw district. So yes, um, it, those are the four seasons that we used to joke about in the Cal Guard. 
So, you know, if you go back in the scientific record, uh, what, what I found very fascinating, there was a big article, as I recall, in the, uh, the San, uh, San Jose Mercury News about four or five years ago, and it uh, was during the, the tail end of that pretty bad drought that California was experiencing about four years ago. Uh, it was a multi-year drought. And this article talked about how uh, in the last 2,000 years, where they have reliable tree ring data, right, this is not, not none of this is theoretical. It's all pretty cut and dried based on examining tree rings and their growth patterns. Uh, the article talked about a 200-year-long drought that occurred, if memory serves me correctly, somewhere around 600 to 800 AD, and it was followed very quickly by another drought that, if, if memory serves, was like 130 years in a row. And of course, both of these massive mega droughts in California happened, you know, centuries prior to industrialization. And so, first of all, on the drought standpoint, California—that's uh, that's kind of something that California is used to in the historical record. It frequently has uh, droughts now. On the heat side of things, it's important for your viewers that are all across America to understand that California isn't like the rest of the country in more ways than one. One of the reasons why California is a pleasant place to live is they have what's called a Mediterranean climate. And that is brought to you by the fact that the Pacific Ocean off the coast of California is cool relative to, for example, where I live now in Texas, where you have the warm Gulf or along the East Coast where you have the Gulf Stream current. And that cool water of the Pacific does one big thing for California. It makes it dry. It gives it low humidity. The other thing that is interesting about California that is, again, unlike most of the rest of the country, is that it gets almost all of its precipitation, about 80% of its precipitation, over a five-month period, roughly starting in uh, November, and then going through you know, uh, February, March, sometimes as late as April. And so once you get outside, once that stops, it's very rare for California to have any rainfall at all, any appreciable rainfall for two, three, four, five, six months. Uh, and you occasionally have some thunderstorms over the desert area, but again, not very many. It's not like Texas where, where there's really no particular pattern to the roughly 33 inches of rain a year that falls where I live. You see virtually an equal amount during the summer as well as the winter. That's not the case in California. Now, why is that important? It's important because if you have a record year for rainfall and snowfall, like you did, I think in the, I'm trying to remember, was it 2017, 18 was the record breaking uh, year that I think broke the drought if memory serves. And so even after a record-breaking year for rainfall and snowfall in California, you can have uh, a, a, a very, very dry conditions by the time you get into August or September. Uh, it's just the way it works. It doesn't matter how hot it is. It doesn't matter how cold it is. California's Mediterranean climate leads uh, its forests, including the chaparral in the south, to be extremely dry uh, by the end of the dry season, before the onset of the major rains uh, and uh, snowfall. And that's what's going on right now in California. In fact, the first big storms are due to roll in any day now. Wow, that's, uh, 
Yeah, so that's not the perspective that you get. I think it's, it's, and people don't think, I think they think, oh, well, I really like the climate here and that it's dry, but there's no conception that, oh, that may also have hazards to it that we have to deal with. I think it's just, well, it should, and this is, I think there's a, there's just a deifying of nature that goes on all the time where people think, yeah, nature is a delicate nurturer. If anything ever goes wrong, it's because we angered or ruined or destabilized the delicate nurturer versus no, it's, it's very dynamic and in many ways dangerous. So you were talking about the historical case though. It's fascinating to me. I'm trying to remember his first name. You know, the, the post-Civil War novelist Dana, the Dana Point is named after. And he wrote the, this book, um, I'm going to get it wrong. I think it was like three years before the mast or something like that. And it's his uh, account of being on a clipper ship as it went from the East Coast and sailed up the California coast. And what is fascinating about this, actually it was prior to the Civil War, I think, now, now that I've come to think of it. What, what's fascinating is he has this description of pulling into Los Angeles, and then there was this huge uh, fire in the Chaparral that caused all the people in the city then, and at the time California, as far as non-Native American residents, only had about 10,000 people that were living there before the gold rush, uh, again, excluding the Native American peoples who were further inland. And he talks about how all of the people were in Los Angeles were huddled on the beach with their blankets and their, all the belongings that they, could, that they could bring with them because the entire hillsides were on fire. Wow. Uh, and, and so, and that this evidently was like a regular occurrence in, in California. And he writes about this in this book that was published, I think, in the, the 1840s or 1850s. And so what you see in California from a historic standpoint, again, the chaparral burning every 20 or 30 years, but in Northern California, prior to the gold rush, uh, you had the Native American tribes and they were nomadic. They didn't have fixed dwellings. And so what they frequently did was they purposefully set fire to the forest to encourage the growth of the, the plants that they would eat as well as game animals. Because when you have a thick forest, neither is going to grow. You're not going to get very many deer, and you're certainly not going to get much in the way of other foods uh, that are going to be more common in a grassland. And so when you then had uh, the gold rush happen in 1849, you went from roughly 10,000 Europeans along the coast clustered along the Spanish and then Mexican missionary uh, or mission uh, settlements and then, of course, in the far north, you had the Russian uh, Fort Ross. Uh, and overnight, you went from 10,000 to 300,000 people. And so immediately then, you have people coming in from all over the world, from Europe, mostly from the East Coast, from China. And all of a sudden, the Native American practices of setting fire were dangerous, right? Because you have these people living in these, these gold rush towns made out of wood, harvested from the nearby forest. And when the Native Americans, if they set a fire, it would destroy your little gold rush village. And so they're like, don't do that anymore. Stop it. We, you know, the, this wood is valuable to us. We want to harvest it. And you're, you're burning down our, our homes. And so the Native American tribes were forbidden then from setting these fires, uh, which, of course, they could just simply walk away from, right? Because they didn't have fixed dwellings. And so overnight, you had a massive change in California's land management practices and that was okay for about 80 years because you had, you had uh, the harvesting of the timber, 
you had concurrent with that with proper forest management uh, uh, tactics and, and techniques. You had the thinning of the trees. Uh, you had the clearing of brush. You had some preventative burns. And the amount of fires was relatively uh, constant. Uh, and in fact, if you looked at the frequency of fire in California uh, up to just a couple of years ago, there was no trend. In other words, if climate change uh, was something that could explain the severity and the, the number of fires, you really didn't see a trend at all as of about five years ago. Uh, now, again, I would argue that the increased fuel in the forest is what's really driving this. Uh, and so that's kind of where we were uh, historically. One last fascinating point, Alex, when I was in the legislature, there was this book that was given out uh, to some of us uh, lawmakers who were interested by, a, um, uh, by an expert named George Gruel. And he, he's very old now, assuming he's even still alive. And it was called uh, Fire in the Sierra Nevada, uh, a, uh, a photographic record. Uh, and what he did was he took dozens and dozens and dozens of these photographs that were taken at the onset of California statehood near the advent of the gold rush. And then he went out to the same locations in the 1980s and early 1990s. I'm, I can't remember exactly when this book was published. And he took the same photograph from the same vantage point. And what you saw in photograph after photograph after photograph was in the early 1850s, the landscape was uh, dominated by grasslands with a few isolated stands of pine trees and or oak trees but it was mostly grassland. And then you went to the same location in 1980 and it was wall-to-wall -wall trees. And that's what we're dealing with. Well, yeah, these, I, I love these facts. I think it's so important to orient people toward A, the reality of what nature is like, and then B, and this really upsets me, the reality that our far less sophisticated ancestors were far wiser about preventing dangerous out of control wildfires than we are. You just think about, I know you're also into energy as, as I am. I mean, just think about what energy gives us this ability to get machines to do just an unbelievable amount of work on our behalf. And with all this machine power at our disposal, including that takes care of our food and our clothing and our shelter, like we have so many resources, so much capability and we can't manage a damn forest. Whereas, you know, Native American tribes sometimes living hand to mouth, sometimes at war, like they can do it. And people in a gold rush era can do it in what we would consider just unimaginable poverty. For the most part, it just shows that, uh, you know, I think I, I posted that the, the cause of the Cal root cause of the California blackouts was systemic environmentalism. Well, definitely the cause of these out of control wildfires is systemic environmentalism, including this myth that nature is a delicate nurturer. So if we just leave her alone, everything will take care of itself. Well, right. And, and in fact, uh, I think what you've seen is, I mean, the, the environmental left would argue this point, and, and I would agree with them on this one narrow issue, which is that we have been suppressing fires for the last several decades. And that's part of the reason why we've had this huge fire buildup. Now, the flip side of it is we don't do the harvesting that we used to do, which used to pay for a lot of the upkeep of the forest because that has been blocked by the left as well. And so you have this 
hybrid policy that is unbalanced, where we try to prevent the fire, uh, and then that results in further buildup and further buildup of, of both the density of the trees. See, the, the thing that when you have a healthy forest that has been thinned and uh, has had a few uh, grass fires to kind of burn off the brush, what you'll see uh, is like with the pine trees, you'll see the first green branches will be about 20 feet up. And that's very important because the bark on that tree will protect it from a low intensity brush fire. And you won't have fire that then gets up into the crown of the tree on a very dry, windy day, and then starts the forest fire going from the tree to tree, burning through the tops of the trees, right? Now, what happens today in California is you have uh, both mature trees and very small trees and a lot of thick brush as well as grass. And so when the fire starts, it immediately goes up into the the canopy of the forest and rapidly starts to burn trees, in which case in California, of course, a lot of these trees are already very stressed or dead and have been allowed to stand and not been harvested because again, the environmentalists uh, file lawsuits to prevent even the harvesting of a tree that's been killed uh, through drought and through these beetles that get in when the tree is stressed and they're particularly susceptible to bark beetles. Now, the issue is if you're a, uh, a, a company wanting to make some forest uh, wood product, you have to get into that forest within a year of it dying from drought and bark beetles. Otherwise, it starts to rot and it loses its economic value very quickly. And what you see all around the state is, no, 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 you can't go in and do anything to harvest anything of value from those dying forests uh, because that would somehow be immoral. And as a result, there were articles, even in the left-wing press, as recently as less than two years ago, talking about the hundreds of millions of dead trees in California that were killed off by the drought and then the bark beetles, and then simply left to stand like matchsticks ready to ignite. What, what were those publications saying about that situation? Oh, well, just that it happened and that uh, this was the drought. But were they saying, oh, we should go ahead and... and log those trees? No, no, no. I don't recall any suggestion of that. It was just like, this is a fire, it's going to happen, and, uh, you know, we need to spend money to clear it. And uh, the, again, the problem, Alex, though, is that if you don't allow anything of economic value to be taken out of the forest, the cost of the taxpayer goes up significantly to do the right thing. And, and so I think that the left kind of wants this catch-22. In other words, they want people to be living near these dangerous areas such that they can't get then a fire insurance for their home. If you can't get fire insurance, you can't get a mortgage. If you can't get a mortgage, you can't sell your house, right? And now your property, your, your retirement uh, plan is completely worthless and you have to abandon the property that you own that is near Bureau of Land Management land or Forest Service land. And then you have to go live in some you know, high rise apartment uh, you know, low-cost, high-density housing uh, in a major urban area. Yeah, and then we'll also have all green energy, so then your power will go off <laughs> exactly. and no oil, so you can't transport anything uh, to the uh, to the city. So let's summarize in terms of if, if if you were Gavin Newsom right now, what would be your top three agenda items? Oh my goodness! Um, first of all, I have to 
I have to kind of get get over the willies that you've just given me by making me think I'm Gavin Newsom. So okay, well let's say let, we let recall recover. him and we'll recall him and put you in. Okay, there that? you go. There, well, of course, then as a as a Republican, I wouldn't be able to get a damn thing done in the current legislature with super majorities of Democrats in both houses. But so let's just go with the Gavin Newsom thing for a moment. Um, as I mentioned, he took some steps in the right direction in his first year in office, and some of the things he did was he made it easier to do prescribed burns by trying to streamline some of the, the paperwork needed to get air quality management permission to do a burn. Because again, what you saw was that on days when it would be better to do a burn because you had lower wind speeds, the air quality management districts would say, well, no, you can't do a burn because the smoke is going to stay around because there's no wind to blow it right. out of the inversion layer, right? So it was, a, it was this you know, damned if you do and damned if you don't scenario. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, he was able to get a few hundred million dollars uh, to allow, I'm trying to remember whether it was Cal Fire or which agency it was, but to, to get in and do some more active forest management. Uh, and I believe even on federal lands, because there's a, uh, um, a, 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 like a cooperation agreement that you see between the state of California and the federal government insofar as federal lands that are within the state of California, that California can go and try to manage because only, only 3% of all of the forests in California that are productive forests are actually owned by the state that are in state parks. So only 3%. And then something like, if, I, if memory serves, something like 57% are owned by the federal government. And is, if, if I recall correctly, about 40% are owned privately. And so this would allow uh, state agencies to get out and be a little more aggressive in trying to reduce the fuel load. But again, it's the right thing, but it's too little too late. So let's do more of that. And then the other thing is these, these timber harvest plants, um, they used to be relatively easy to get. And they used to be relatively inexpensive to apply for. And in recent years, instead of something that cost, you know, forty dollars or $50,000 to file the plan, uh, and to, to get out then and to build access roads and to take some timber. Uh, now we're talking about millions of dollars and quite a bit of time that it takes to go through this process. And this is the, has had the effect of reducing the economic value of the privately held land. And frankly, on the federal side, you see again, less interest, even though the Trump administration has tried to revive uh, some bit of uh, commercial activity in California's federally managed forests, again, being fought every step of the way. So, uh, it, and uh, one last thing that, that he could do that would also uh, have downstream effects that would be positive for the forest industry is California used to have a lot of functioning biomass plants. And these biomass plants, you would think, right, oh, it's biomass, it's renewable. Uh, why aren't we doing more of this? Uh, well, uh, California used to burn a lot of forest scraps and, and waste, you know, waste from the, the uh, lumber mills and things like that. And they would make power frequently in the early days to power that uh, mill or the pulp mill. Uh, and then later on to actually put into the power grid. Well, what happened over time, Alex, was that because it's somewhat labor intensive to harvest the timber and then to pull a low energy density fuel from distant sources to these power generators, uh, it couldn't compete with low cost uh, natural gas, which has been made more affordable by fracking in North America. 
It couldn't compete with the state subsidized and mandated wind and solar power. And so what you found was the biomass plants couldn't generate electricity for cheap enough that the utilities, that the grid operator would pay for that energy, number one. And number two, the air quality management districts would also attack the biomass plants and say, well, when you're operating, you're putting up too many particulates, you're putting up too many uh, volatile organic compounds and other uh, uh, you know, uh, air pollution. Now, that's true relative to something like a clean natural gas plant. However, Californians need to ask themselves, do you like your air quality right now? Because on a uh, per energy basis, if you look at the amount of energy released in burning through a wildfire, the amount of air pollution that those wildfires are generating is about 10 times or more the amount of air pollution that would be generated if it was done in, under a controlled circumstance in a biomass plant. And so biomass plants were kind of part of a food chain in California that included uh, forest products, you know, the generation of timber and, and other products like paper, uh, you know, construction materials for our homes and, and furniture and things like that. And it even included generating electricity. But now we generate a lot less electricity in California because the whole ecosystem of our forest management system has withered to be a fraction of what it used to be. And, the, you know, one last irony, as you may know, out on the East Coast, the East Coast is selling wood from the piney forests of Carolina to, to Germany in the form of wood pellets for Germany to burn so that they could claim somehow carbon neutrality, never mind the fact that the carbon neutrality ca calculation is only arrived at after excluding the effort it took to harvest the wood, excluding the effort it took to dry it and to pelletize it, and excluding the effort it took to ship it on a, on a container ship across the Atlantic Ocean to Germany where it's burned. I mean, how ridiculous is it that we're exporting wood pellets to Germany, but we don't allow those same wood pellets to be burned in California because of air quality concerns and because cheap solar power makes it unviable economically. Yeah, I mean, cheap solar, that's a whole thing because I think it's, just, it's a whole rigged market because they're, you get to charge, you get to treat reliable and unreliable electricity as the same. So they're not the, the same, are they? As California uh, just found out a few weeks ago during the blackouts. Yeah, uh, definitely not. So here's just a quick thought experiment. Imagine that the California government managed forests were an industrial facility. I think it would rightly be considered the most hazardous industrial facility in the United States in terms of what is a greater environmental hazard than the current state of the forests. There's nothing that can do that to our air. There's nothing that can ruin that amount of property. There's no, either the oldest coal plant is nothing compared to these forests. Yeah. It's, no, it's you're the largest environmental hazard. You're onto something there. And, and there's a study that was released a few years ago that looked at the carbon budget of our government-owned forests in California. And what they found was, in the federal forests especially, they're carbon positive because of the fact they're not being managed and they're burning off. And so what happens with these fires that are so intense, like the ones we're getting now, because the tree density is too dense, there's you know, too much underbrush, right? These fires burn so hot 
that they end up sterilizing the ground and often end up releasing the carbon from all those years of pine needles that have fallen on the forest. Mm. Now, a less aggressive fire wouldn't do that. It would leave that intact. And so the, the federal forests are actually giving out more carbon every year in California than they're taking in because we're not managing them to your point. And, and of course, not even to mention uh, the, the people that, that these fires are killing, uh, and that's directly, uh, not to mention the, uh, the breathing conditions that this is inflicting on people who have asthma or other pre-existing conditions through the really poor uh, air quality. Uh, and then, uh, you know, when you, when you look at the, the irony along the lines of what you're talking about, about if you, if you treated it as an, an industry, right, and, and uh, it, you've got bad air, you've got dangerous conditions with, with the fire, um, you know, it, it's, it's one disaster after the other. But here's the kicker. When California, one of the leading states when it comes to being very concerned about its greenhouse gas emissions, uh, in the last year or two, I'm trying to remember the report, I think it was two years ago when we had the, the first big fires that really got on the map nationally, uh, especially I think because Trump was president so they could be linked to global warming, right? So the, uh, the, the California agency that, that accounts for the carbon dioxide budget, I think it's the uh, Air Resources Board, right? Specifically excluded the amount of CO2 released into the atmosphere because of the fires. So they, they were saying, oh, look, we're, we're actually making our target, you know, here's our reduction curve. And then there's like this asterisk. And if you re carefully read the report, you'd find, well, it excludes the amount of carbon dioxide released by, by all the fires in 2018. Because if you counted that, we would have actually had more carbon dioxide emissions than uh, rather than less. So that's to your point. Yeah, I think there's something there where the, you know, the, the government slash Gavin Newsom managed forest is the biggest environmental hazard in the United uh, States. And if it was private, if it was a private entity doing that, I mean, they would just be the considered the most immoral people in the country. Um, let's see. So uh, one final question. So what you gave us some of your plans, which I like, how can we as citizens get involved? Well, I mean, the first thing I think citizens need to do is they need to understand that when politicians immediately resort to saying uh, climate change, climate change, climate change, that I see that as kind of the, the rough political equivalent of like a shaman using that term as an incantation that then is designed to ward off any bad policy, any mistakes that they've made, because it's, it's, like with the, it's like with my dog, right? I have two dogs at home and we have squirrels. And all I have to do is by the back door, if I say squirrel, they'll forget anything that they were doing and they will look at that back door because I said squirrel. And so similarly, when politicians say climate change, you as a voter, you as a citizen have to think really hard and say, now, wait a minute, is that really what's driving what's going on or is there a more complicated nuanced policy set behind this that I should be looking at? And as I say, let's say it is climate change. Let's say Gavin Newsom is a thousand percent right that the, that the hotter temperatures that he claims, uh, which again, 
if you look at California, look at the evidence of, from unperturbed uh, uh, temperature stations that haven't been encroached by urbanization. Let's set aside that for a moment, though, and let's just say, okay, yeah, let's say it is climate change. What would you do to solve it? And here's the irony. What you would do to solve it is the exact same thing that I'm proposing you need to do today, which is actively manage your forests, right? Do some preventive burns. Do more of them than you're doing now. Thin the forests. Pull the underbrush out of the forests. Maybe make some money by selling some of the timber that you can use to offset the cost of managing the forest, right? Those are the things you would do because if climate change is the problem that they say it is, we could completely eliminate California tomorrow. Now, I know that California is beginning to lose population, so its bad policies are kind of on the path to eliminating California anyway, but it would probably take at the current rate a couple hundred years for that to happen. So let's just say, theoretically, we could just eliminate California tomorrow, just like wipe it out. One year worth of growth in the People's Republic of China would more than wipe out all of the carbon dioxide reduction gains made by completely wiping California off the face of the earth. So if you expect California's policies to meaningfully affect the environment, then, you know, I don't know, um, I think you may, may need to look, look a little deeper on this topic uh, because it, it, it's not something California can do by itself. What California can do though, is they can allow for their forests to be more actively managed, to be thinned, to be cleared, to allow some harvesting. California can do that. And now, of course, you're, you've got groups standing in the way. You have the Natural Resources Defense Council. You have the Sierra Club. They're going to file lawsuits. You have entrenched bureaucrats that, that don't want to change at both the federal and the state level. So it's going to take some effort. And I don't know, maybe these terrible wildfires will cause enough people to ask some good questions that maybe, maybe these fires can be an inflection point for an informed citizenry to be able to finally begin to understand this problem and take some action. Yeah, and I think it's all about really giving people the context to understand uh, what's happening and then also to understand the potential solutions. I mean, I consider it a complete non-starter to say, oh, my what I'm going to do is I'm going to blame climate change, which just means the current level of CO2. There's California can do nothing right now and for the foreseeable future about the level of CO2. Even if you reduce emissions, CO2 levels still go up. So even if that is a major driver, you still have to make the policy that makes the best out of that situation versus just ascribing way too much significance to it and then having this can't do attitude. So what that shows to me is people who do that, they don't care about protecting people from fires. They actually like fires because it gets people to buy into their narrative and buy into their uh, policies. And I think that's why Gavin has such a uh, expletive eating grin when he's in the forest blaming climate change because it's validation of his perspective and his policies, not that he really wants to do everything that's actually possible to uh, deal with it. And so I'll just say, I'm really, I really wish you were still in office here, Chuck. And uh, if we recall Gavin, I will definitely support your candidacy. <laughs> well, I'd have to establish residency first and, and that would take some doing, but I, I appreciate that. And it's always great to talk to a, a, a Californian as a former Californian. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, we could use more like you and I, I'm not fleeing yet. It's, it's way too nice here in Laguna Beach, but uh, 
yeah, I hope we can turn it around before it becomes necessary. Thanks so much, Chuck. Thank you. Thanks again to Chuck DeVore for joining me. As I told him at the end, I think it's just so important for us to have this historical context about what fire was like in the past, because it gives us a sense of what nature is actually like with respect to fire and why we have to very intelligently manage and transform nature in order to have the different kinds of values that we can get from forest, whether it's aesthetic values or getting wood from it or whatever else, or if there's some particular species we care about and want to observe, whatever it is, it requires a lot of intelligent impact transformation manipulation. And that's exactly what hasn't been done. There's just been this dogma that, well, we just should preserve it. And then part of preserving it is, oh, if there's a fire, we just automatically need to stop the fire because there shouldn't be the fire. There's really this, I sometimes call it the Disney view of nature. I think someone recently in an article called it the Bambi something, like there's some formal term for it, but it's like the Bambi view of nature. We need to totally get rid of that. We really need to view nature not as delicate nurturer, but as wild potential. So thinking of it as, yeah, it's deficient. It doesn't give us everything we need. We need to produce a lot. It's dangerous. Part of what we need to produce is we need to produce protections against uh, a lot of what nature threatens us with, including fires. And then it's very dynamic. It's changing all the time. And if we don't recognize that, we can be in this crazy position where we have more capability than anyone has ever had in history. And yet, we are the opposite of mastering wildfires. We're, we're making them worse. And it's not because global climate has gotten one degree Celsius warmer in the last 150 years. If climate shifted much more, much more dramatically than it has, we would still be totally fine with respect to wildfires if we, if we manage them intelligently. And it's just crazy that, that we have this can't do attitude that, oh, well, Wildfires, the only thing we can do is somehow get CO2 levels to lower, which we know we can't do. So what we're going to do is we're just going to use this to curse fossil fuels and by implication, everyone who uses them, which is really uh, everyone. So I really appreciate Chuck giving us this perspective and giving us some guidance. I'm going to have some, uh, probably by the time this comes out, there'll be some new uh, California wildfires talking points at energytalkingpoints.com, which is a good segue to go to energytalkingpoints.com. We have a a new website up. I want to thank uh, one of our listeners, Sasha Klein, who very generously gave his time to help create this site. I think the site is a huge uh, upgrade from what it was before, which was just different collections of Google Docs, and this will make it way easier to navigate, way easier to share. So. If you've shared it in the past, share it again. If you haven't shared it in the past, maybe because you didn't think it was easy enough to navigate, definitely share it now, energytalkingpoints.com. It's getting more and more attention from different kinds of uh, politicians. And the more you share it, the more attention it will get, the more chance that some of these points will come up. And I think in particular, the points about the California blackouts and the California wildfires, these are vital points to make because if, if, we go with the way the media are framing things right now. They're framing things as basically, yeah, there weren't really any blackouts in California, so nothing to pay attention to there. And there are just a lot of wildfires in California because Republicans 
uh, allowed us to emit CO2. And we wouldn't have these problems if only we weren't emitting CO2, which we can somehow solve with a Green New Deal. So there's just this narrative that's totally wrong versus the truth, which is that green energy policies are causing blackouts in California and green forestry policy projects are cause uh, green forestry policy um, uh, policies. Why am I having trouble <laughs> saying that? Green forestry policies are causing dangerous out of control wildfires in California. So as inarticulate as I was in making that point, those two points I think are very powerful and very necessary. And they're exactly the kind of thing that any candidate running for office can make, particularly with the succinct and powerful and well-referenced points that I have up at energytalkingpoints.com. All right, that is it for this show. It's possible that I'll have another show this week. Uh, I guess you'll see when this comes out on Wednesday, it's possible I'll hold that show to the next week, but I have at some point soon, I will have on Patrick Moore, co-founder of Greenpeace to talk specifically about forest management. He has a, a really interesting background in that and always has a, an interesting perspective on uh, everything really. So I'm looking forward to that, doing that interview tomorrow. May well release it this week. Uh, but that is it for this week, for this episode this week, at least. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com to get on the mailing list, to get the weekly email, plus the energy clarity course for free. Go to industrialprogress.com, sign up with your email address. Also doing a lot more speaking, particularly virtual speaking. I just booked a, a virtual speech today that happened to be on the same day as another virtual speech. So it's really, these are really starting to add up and they're a lot lower cost than my in-person speeches have historically been. So if you want a great presentation uh, for your, you know, for your team, for your customers, uh, for anyone else, then definitely email me at alex at alexepstein.com, subject speaking and see if it makes sense to do something. One more thing, if you like the work that we're doing, particularly this election season with energytalkingpoints.com, behind the scenes with Moral Case for Fossil Fuels 2.0, you haven't seen that yet, but a lot of the work that's going into that is making Power Hour and my other things a lot better. If you want to support those projects, our research and development, our marketing efforts, go to industrialprogress.com accelerate and become an accelerator. That has helped uh, tremendously increase the reach of our work and continued contributions will go directly toward that. All right, that's really it for this week. Uh, stay safe if you're in California, fight back against green energy and green forestry. And until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.